This is a bit of true confession of the 25 years that we've had groups here at Greenville Oaks. I've been involved in it most of that time. Done all the ways that we've tried to do it. I went to the Philippines for two years. Uh, did a little bit of small group there. When I came back though, I got out of the habit. I had the excuses. This year, uh, re-engaged and got with uh, three families. One that's uh, young families and two of them that are young married with no kids. And it's been a blessing. See, they, they see life a little bit different than I do. They see church a little bit different. They see God a little bit different. But the perspective is encouraging. And this group has been as good as any that I've been in in terms of taking care of each other in, in health issues, uh, taking care of neighbors as, as they had family trauma, uh, and in getting involved in service projects at Greenville Oaks. We've done uh, marvelous things in the few months we've been together. And to tell you the truth, I'm better for being with them. I'm better and see things more completely for Greenville Oaks being engaged with them. I see life better. I see church better. I see God better in groups. Well, life is better connected. That's what we've been saying over the last two weeks and, and today, that life in small groups and connection with others that know our name, our stories, our prayer requests, our dreams, these are all a part of what life has done best as. So we've focused on three parts of the benefit of groups. The last two weeks, the first week, it was uh, that life is better uh, connected because groups provide us a place for belonging. And we all need a place to belong, a story that we belong to. But the second piece last week we talked about was that life is better connected because groups are a place where care happens, where we give and receive care. And we, uh, the story was told last week from the Mannings about all that they'd been through this last year and how groups provided the care they needed most in the season they needed it most. Now they're able to provide that to others who will walk through a similar season in the year ahead. But today I want to focus on a third reason why groups are so important, and that's this, that groups are a place where transformation happens. I, I, I see that in my own life when I think about the different groups I've been a part of. I was a part of a, a small group, we called them huddles in our youth group, I remember growing up. And that was a place where the Greens would invite us into their home every Wednesday night. We would come out of football practice or band practice, whatever it was that was extracurriculars. We'd come together, we'd eat, and we'd share the story of God together. We would share our lives together. We'd pray for one another. And important things happened in those groups. But it continued on past that. As I was in grad school, there was a mentor group that I was a part of. And I still call the same professor who was my mentor in that group from time to time in the the groups go on and on. I, I can think about a pastor's group that I'm a part of that I meet every single year with that I, I would never give up that commitment because it means so much to be in partnership and commitment and to hear all that God's done in their lives and to pray for one another and hear the struggles that have happened over the last year. We all need groups. And here at Greenville Oaks, I've found groups as well. We've had been a part of a connect group the last two years that's been a blessing to us, and uh, we're about to start into a simple truth group, which is exciting. I know many of you can think back on your lives and think about groups that have been meaningful to you, whether it was a group at camp that you spent time with, or it was a women's group or a men's group or a Bible study group. We all can mark the transformation in our lives by either people or individuals or groups that we have been in partnership or lived and done life with. We believe this is so important for our growth. And so the encouragement through this series as we close a little bit later today is that you'll find that group yourself. If you're already a part of a group, we just want to encourage you to keep being a part of it. Keep growing with that group. Keep being 
uh, the, the hands and feet of Jesus to those people who need it most, who you're caring for and receiving care from. But if you're not a part of a group, I want to encourage you this year to find one that will be part of your growth journey and transformation. Let's pray as we, we open our, our time in the Word this morning. Oh God, you are the God above all gods. And earnestly we long for you. We, we ask that you would come and you would be present and be close in this season, God. We pray that you'd be close to those on the Gulf Coast right now as well as we have already prayed that your presence would be clear in your church, would stand up and be uh, your people in this season to provide care to those who need it most. Help us to be a part of that and to discover the best partnerships to journey in the long term, God, with the people in these areas that have been hit hardest. God, our prayer this morning is that you'd be close to us right now through the words of your scripture, through all of the, uh, the, the ways you speak to us this season. God, would you do that? Would you speak and break through, God, all the chaos in our lives, all of the noise in our minds right now? Would you, would you move through all that to speak a word, God, that would be powerful this morning? I pray today you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, transformation in our lives. Discipleship is a process. It's true we can talk about a moment of salvation when we went into the waters of baptism, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. There are moments, but salvation is also a process in our lives, isn't it? You're different than who you were, and God is continuing to renew that salvation. In fact, throughout Scripture, the New Testament talks about uh, salvation as an ongoing process, that we're being saved which is not how I used to think about it growing up. I thought about it being a moment, and once I'm assured of that, well, kind of done that part. But there's also parts in the New Testament that talk about this process, that we're in, constantly in a process of being saved, of being renewed, of having our lives transformed. And that's the invitation that we have to be a part of groups. The problem is, in this world, uh, we might have patience to see that transformation happen, but you don't have to be patient for long to see the way that sin creeps into our lives and takes us places we never imagined we would go. It doesn't take as long for sin to take hold of us than it does for the Spirit of God to do that so many times. And all of us can think about moments where sin has taken us in directions we would have never imagined, where the addictive quality of sin takes us in places at a speed that we never imagined. We just go down a path not imagining what that might do in our lives. But the work of transformation is a slow process often. Some of us have been a part of radical moments where everything changed in a moment, but so many more of us can tell stories about how it's been a journey and how God has changed us and how we can see that transformative journey we can, we can testify to. But it's hard to know when the moments were. When did that transformation happen? When did we decide to live in this new way? Well, it was a process. It was a journey. God's desire of a, is for each of us to be on that journey with Him. He wants us to become the best version of ourselves that we can be. It's important for us to understand this as we talk about discipleship and transformation. Sometimes we think we have to become good in order for God to love us and to be pleased with us. But that's not what Scripture talks about. The first words of Jesus' first sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember what the first word is? Blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Same thing in Genesis 1, before the fall happens, God creates and He calls it good. He blesses His good creation. And sometimes we get that backwards. We think we have to do certain things to earn his love. That's not how it works. We don't work and and obey God for the blessing. We do that from the blessing of God that's already ours. And when we know who we are and we've received that blessing and received the love of God, 
the natural response we want to give is obedience because we know the way he teaches is the best way of life possible. That's what I've discovered in my own life is the more I can let go of having to earn salvation, the more I find myself being transformed by him, by the power that's at work through the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to point us to a couple of scriptures that talk about this idea of transformation. I want us to learn from those places. The the first comes in the book of Romans. If you turn your Bibles there with me or find the, the place on your tablets or phones, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is one of the places that talks about this language of transformation. This is what Paul writes to the church at Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, the the word there that's translated transformed is the word meta... Let me make sure I get this right. I don't memorize the Greek as well as my English. Metamorphusthai. It's the idea, and it comes from the same root word as metamorphosis. The idea of what a butterfly goes through from caterpillar stage all the way to cocoon and into becoming a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. It's a transition. It's a transformation. It literally means to change form. And many of you can tell that own story in your own lives, can't you? You can talk about this is what you once were. Paul talks about this to the people who are in the early church. This is who you were, but now this is who you've become because of God's transformation in your life. And how does Romans tell us that transformation happens? It happens through a renewal of our minds. That's what repentance is. Repentance is to change our minds, is to set our course on a new path. This is the idea of transformation that Paul's talking about. And when we're transformed in that way, when our minds are renewed, we're able to then uh, test what God's will is in our lives, to know it better in our lives. A second passage I want to take us to uses the same word uh, right out of meta- metamorphosis, that idea. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's just one verse that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. It's, it's chapter 3, verse 18. It says there, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, transformation, the same idea as metamorphosis. It's a change in form of who we were and who we're becoming. Now, I want to point out something in these two verbs that show up in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Same word it's working off of. These are both passive verbs. Transformation is not the kind of thing that we get to own and say, look who we've become on our own efforts. Transformation is a passive process. We are being transformed. So it's God's word. God gets the credit But I think it's important for us to also note that sometimes we think, well, if God's going to do this, he's going to have to do all of it. No, we can block the transformation that God wants to do in our lives. So it's kind of a partnership between us and God. He's the one who gets the credit. He's the one who gets the word. But we're the ones who open ourselves up to that change that God wants to do in our lives. But it's God through the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, who is a part of this word. We, We can set up our lives in a way that welcomes this transformation. We can also set up our lives in a way that resists that kind of transformation. But one of the key ways that that transformation happens is through the saints, through the holy ones of God, his church, his people, that do life together in the context of groups. Uh, One of the passages that talks about this actually comes right out of Proverbs. It's Proverbs 27, 17. Many of you have memorized this verse. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens 
another. This is how transformation happens. Sharpening happens in partnership with others who are interested in being fully grown into the image of Christ. I want you to think for a moment about the Gospels, about the story of Jesus, about the kingdom that he pronounced, right? He preaches the message of the kingdom of God. He displays it by his healing of people, by casting out demons. What an incredible time to live. But I want you to notice not just what he does. I want you to notice how he does it. See, what Jesus does when he first starts out is he calls people to follow him. That's the call uh, to these initial disciples. Come, follow me. What he basically does is he starts a small group. I want you to I want to read to you how he does this. This is in the Gospel of Mark. I want to read from Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Just listen to the way that Jesus starts this ministry of the kingdom. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him, and when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. See, when Jesus starts his ministry, he doesn't go out and start filling arenas full of people and gathering crowd after crowd after crowd. That'll happen. The thousands come in the moments after this. But as, after he is baptized and he begins his ministry, the first thing he does is he go to, goes to specific individuals and he calls them into partnership. He says, come and follow me. And they do that. They leave their boats. They leave their jobs as fishermen. They leave their fathers and they, they go and they come to be a part of this small group. Now, as I'm thinking about strategy, about God's vision, about the entire world being transformed to being his people, the dream that one day it would be millions and billions of people that would come to claim Jesus as Lord. And I'm Jesus who gets to come and only spend a few years with his ministry at its height. How would you spend that time if you were Jesus? I'm thinking I would do everything I could to reach as many people in as many different places. I would be a traveling itinerant preacher that would go and would heal and go from place to place as fast as I possibly could. But what Jesus decides to do is to spend time with the 12 that he could have spent doing that very thing. Every minute, every hour, every day that he spends with these 12 disciples is a yes to them that ends up being a no to crowds of people he could have healed, or he could have shared his message with it, never got to see him. I think that to be an amazing idea. Why would Jesus spend so much time saying yes to these 12 when that yes means a no to so many others? And I think it's because Jesus knows something that we sometimes forget. The change rarely happens in rooms where we're passive participants listening to others talk. Change happens most. It happens best in the context of disciples who are walking with one another in circles instead of rows. That doesn't mean that a sermon can't be a transforming moment. You might even remember a sermon at one point that changed your life, changed your perspective. But the ongoing work of transformation is not going to happen in a moment in a crowd. It happens best with people that we know that we're doing life with. But when you look at this group, This group of 12 that Jesus gathers around him, isn't it interesting, the group that he gathers? Because I would do this a little differently, I think. This is a strange bunch. It's going to take at least three years to form these fishermen and otherwise into the kind of people he wants them to become. It seems like a near impossibility to bring this group together. Just think for a moment about these different people in the 12 disciples. There's the four that's already been mentioned in Mark chapter 1, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. 
They're fishermen. They're unlearned men with calluses on their hands for the number of nets that they've pulled in over the years with their fathers. I can't get over James and John's nicknames. Did you catch this? I don't think it was in Mark 1, but it shows up a little later. Their, their nickname is Boanerges. You know what that means? Sons of Thunder. There has to be a story around getting a nickname like that, right? These guys must be bold, big guys that everywhere they walk, it's like the ground shakes because they're the sons of thunder. Uh, now, you've got Thomas, though, who's the resident skeptic. He doesn't believe until he actually touches the scars on, on Jesus' hands and wrists. Uh, there's Bartholomew and Thaddeus. There's always a few introverts in every crowd, right? Probably about half the crowd. And they have to, I would imagine, be two of those. So if you're, you're an introvert, you've got your patron saints here. Uh, you've got Matthew and Simon. This may be the most incredible piece of this, right? Matthew, you, you know, he's a tax collector, and the tax collectors are despised by the Jews. The reason for that is they were basically traitors to the Jewish people. They took a job working for the Romans, taking taxes away from the Jewish people, and charging those Jewish people who were their own people more than, they, uh, than Rome demanded so that they could make a living themselves. They were hated by the Jews, and they were used by the Romans. But this is the way they made their living. And, and Jesus calls along Matthew, that guy, to work along with the rest of these Jewish guys. But then there's Simon, Simon the Zealot. I don't know if you know anything about the Zealots. There's kind of four main groups of Jews in the first century. The Zealots are one of those. And the Zealots were people that, well, their idea of a good time was going out and creating revolution and havoc, right? Their idea was if the only way to overthrow Rome would be to do it violently. And we're going to be insurrectionists who are going to at some point wait on the Messiah to come. And once he comes, we'll come in power and we'll overtake Rome. And so it's kind of this militia of guys. And Simon comes from that group of zealots. So imagine trying to get Simon the zealot with Matthew the tax collector in the same group. Imagine how different that is. You know, if we were to gather a group today, what do we tend to do? We try, try to gather like-minded people because you can get further that way. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't forsake diversity for the sake of easy agreement. He pulls together this diverse group of people, and he gathers them, and he preaches the kingdom. These people that should have never gotten along anywhere else, they come together, and they come to this small group, and they're transformed in the process. They know that if they're going to transform the world, and Jesus knows this, they have to first be transformed themselves. I don't have time this morning, unfortunately, to talk about the transformation that we see in each of the lives of these twelve. But I do have time to maybe share a couple of these stories. And one of those I want to talk about is John, one of those sons of thunder I mentioned. John was a fisherman. John was called by Jesus, and he does not start out as a butterfly, if I can put it that way. But if you follow the story along, you begin to see the transformation in his life. In the gospel that bears his name, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which some say means he's probably a little arrogant to call himself such a thing. But if you follow the story along, you begin to realize he is one of those that's part of the tight-knit group with, with Jesus. There's three that are there that seem to be there at key moments that Jesus calls around them, and, and John's one of those. At the transfiguration, he's there to see the glory of the Lord revealed on Jesus, and Elijah and Moses are there. You, he's also there, and Jesus calls him to be in prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. In that moment, he's waiting for his own arrest. He calls them to pray and to stay up, and John, with the others, fails to do it. John's also there at the Last Supper. He's leaning on Jesus' breast, actually. The details are given at that supper next to him. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when everyone else flees at the foot of the cross, John's still there. And at the last moment, he says, John, I want you to take care of my mother Mary when I'm gone. There's a love that is developed between Jesus and John. There's a transformation that happens in his life because of Jesus who was in it. 
And the greatest treaty on love in the New Testament, if it's not 1 Corinthians 13, another great place, would come from the letter that John writes after his transformation. Listen to these words. Several different verses I want to share with you to kind of walk through this book just real quickly. John, 1 John chapter 3 is where I want to pick up in verse 1. Just listen to the different verses and things that John writes as we track through this. First John 1 John uh, 3 verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world did not know us is that it did not know Him. Drop down to verse 11. For this is the message we, you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Verses 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Let me stop right there. Just say this is the reason we respond in moments of tragedy like we've seen, right? Because to have things and not to offer them to those who need it most, somebody who's on need and doesn't have pity, means the love of God is not within us. We respond with love because of the love that God has shown. Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Drop down to verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Again, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Do you see this theme that runs through John's life? Why is he transformed? Why does he talk so predominantly about love? It's because he's experienced the love of God first. And how did he receive that? He received it in a group of 12 guys. The journey around, and he sees the way that Jesus loves those he's encountered. John is a transformed man. He's not the same rough fisherman that he met Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. He's now the disciple of love. Or take Peter, for instance, right? Anybody who thinks by talking, who doesn't exactly have the best filter, right? This is your patron saint, Peter, right? Peter's the one who just, he's bold, he's courageous, he says what's on his mind, and sometimes he gets it exactly right, but sometimes he gets it all wrong. And even in the moment in Mark 8 where Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, that's exactly right. But then when Jesus says what it means that he's the Messiah, that he's going to go and suffer, Peter rejects it and says, no, Lord, we know this is not the way this is going to turn out. And, And Jesus calls Peter, He says, get behind me, Satan. What a harsh word in that scene. But he's transformed from that moment to where in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, in front of 3,000 or more people, Peter's the one who gets to proclaim this message after denying Jesus, after failing to understand who he was. There's a transformation that happens in Peter's life that makes him the perfect man at that moment to proclaim this message. But not everyone was transformed in that group of 12, were they? There's Judas. 
And as I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking, yeah, this is a great sermon. What do you do with this? Because transformation happens in groups. But this guy certainly wasn't transformed. Judas is the one who ends up betraying Jesus. And Judas was well-trusted. He was the treasure among this group of 12. People thought that this guy was worthy of handling the money, and yet at the end of the story, he trades in secrets about where Jesus is for 30 pieces of silver. It seems as if he'll do anything for a buck. But he was trusted initially, and what that shows us, I think, even within our groups, is groups are not a foolproof method of discipleship. What matters in a group is if you're willing to open up your life and live authentically, admit the truth of what's going on. And what we find in the story of Judas is he wasn't fully authentic. He wasn't fully able to share what was going on deep inside of him. He was stealing things from the treasury, and he ends up betraying Jesus in the end in the same way. And so it, part of what a group does is it provides us a context, a place for transformation, but it doesn't guarantee it. It means we've got to open our lives to one another in an honest and fully open way for that transformation to take place. But what we do see in the life of Jesus and his disciples is Jesus roots his whole strategy for the kingdom getting out, not based on the crowds who show up to see a miracle, but based on these 12 guys who get it all wrong in his life but who the Holy Spirit continues to transform and gives hope for the future. And the transformation that happened in that small group ended up transforming the entire world. So before we change the world, it's important that we realize we've got to have ourselves changed, right? We've got to have our motives checked. We've got to live in real relationship with others and show the love of Christ to them and receive it back in turn. So this fall, what we're inviting you to do is to do just that, to join a group, Join a a gathering of disciples that's on a journey with one another, wanting to know the deepest parts of who one another, what we're going through, praying for one another on a constant basis, showing up at the hospital, providing meals when they're needed most. The greatest place of care that happens in our church happens in our group's ministry. Because Christianity is not a solo sport. Christianity is a team sport. We need one another. And isolation is one of the most dangerous places that we could be. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you've heard this maybe said at, at, the, at a wedding ceremony before, but these words are true about our groups as well. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If you're not sure exactly where to find a group, I want to encourage you uh, later today, this week, send an email to me. Find me after the service. Keith Maloney, who, who did our announcements, would love to talk with you as well about the specific needs you have, what night of the week may be best for you. Or if you want to start a group, this would be a great season to do that as well. Because the invitation is to a connect group, one of our community groups, but it can also be to a simple truth group, which you've heard a lot about. I want to close just by kind of giving you a picture of what's coming up starting next week because I'm really excited. I've been planning all summer for this series, and um, I'm really excited about what I get to share with you starting this next week. Simple Truth series came out of the question, what is the most important conversation that needs to be spoken into in our culture? What's most up in the air right now? And as I was dwelling and praying through that, I realized truth is really the greatest casualty of the postmodern era, and it's what we're living through. We're living through what some are calling a post-truth world place where it almost matters not what you believe or that you can prove it. You can say whatever you want to say and people will trust it or they'll not trust it based on the group and the belief they have. We're going to speak into that. So we believe there are some things, some bedrock truths that are key to our faith as Christians. But the hard 
reality about these truths is some of these truths are very simple, but living them out in our lives isn't nearly as simple as the truth itself is. We can believe things propositionally, but the, the real question is, do we live that out? Are those the priorities we have for our lives? So we're going to talk about seven different topics around this topic of truth. We're going to look right at Scripture. We're going to talk about the simple truth when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to humans, when it comes to God's grace, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, baptism, and God's mission. We're going to attack each of these issues in our conversations that we're going to host. In fact, right now you, you see a card in the row in front of you, I hope. It's a simple truth group card. It's for those who are thinking about maybe hosting a conversation, maybe with some friends or people that you've gotten to know. It could be at a restaurant, a coffee shop, just like Keith was saying. We're going to provide resources to you and questions, and that's why we'd like your emails so we can send those questions to you ahead of time so you'll be prepared uh, to, to host that conversation with others that you know. There may be people in this church that you've gotten to know, but you've never really gotten in a group. You, you have a chance to host that group and invite them into your home or somewhere else and, and just have a conversation for seven weeks. Anyone can commit to that for seven weeks. So I want you to consider that for the last time today, we're going to launch these groups again after the sermon next week. Throughout the week, there will be all kinds of options. But if, if you'd like to sign up for that, we don't want you to leave today without filling out that card and getting more information. Because we think this is a really vital conversation. And I think it's a great place for us to begin with those who may not know Jesus and those who have known him for a long time. No matter where we find ourselves, we can look at Scripture and come back to this conversation that our culture needs so desperately. So today we're closing this series about life is better connected. But the whole point of this is that we would step into some group experience, that we'd be ready next week to engage this conversation, that we'd be in prayer about how God would call us to engage those who don't know him as well. Um, I just wanted, before we close today, to invite Mike Stanecki up. If he would come up. Um, I'll let Mike introduce himself here in just a moment. But I asked Mike because Mike's one of those who saw the card in the row in front of him, and he decided he wanted to fill that out. And so I, I guess that was my question, Mike, is what led you to do that? And tell us first a little bit about yourself, but... Why, is it, why do you love this idea of simple truth groups? Um, I, I am excited about simple truth because it's such a simple phrase, a simple concept. Um, I got drawn into the church as, as we know it and, and love it by meeting a young lady 37 years ago, who's now my wife. Um, so Bobby and I are going to host a simple truth group, and I hope to um, have that exchange that you just talked about, that people, whether you're boomers or Gen Xers or millennials want to hear what somebody else has to say about how God speaks into your life and, and do the same thing. I want to hear how God is speaking into our life through what other people hear in the Bible that I'm probably still blind to. I have blind spots about it. Yeah. So uh, we've, we've traveled the journey the last year moving from Atlanta where we raised our kids to here and Greenville Oaks embraced us very quickly, yet it was very difficult for us to form relationship because of our history. Um, we had tremendous friends where we had grown up and raised our kids and two different small groups we've been a part of have been very open very embracing to us and I feel it's it's a chance for us to do that with other people in both directions that's great thank you so much for hosting and being willing to also uh, answer that question today tell us a little bit about that I'm grateful for the Stanekis and others that are going to be hosting these conversations in a simple way right it's seven weeks hosting a conversation at some place just asking some questions I'm going to provide a resource each week with a, a video that I'm going to sh share each week that's going to be a, a bridge uh, from the sermon into the questions for each week of conversation. I'll recap the sermon for those of you who may be serving from week to week or maybe out on Sunday morning, but you're going to engage later in the week in these conversations. Please, if at all you have any interest in hosting these, these conversations, Simple Truth Conversations for seven weeks, fill out that card. Either leave it in the, uh, 
uh, chair where you're at as, as we leave today. We'll pick those up, or if you want to l- drop it off at the door with someone who's around the outside, uh, Keith would love to receive those, I know, at the back, then please do that. But I want to close today with a prayer as we launch into this next season. So let's pray now. Uh, God, we, we invite you into this conversation about truth because we know that truth is not possible without your revelation of it. Um, And so, God, I pray in the midst of a culture that's confused about so many things, God, that we would find in your word some truths to root our lives in, God, that are unshakable, bedrock truths. Yet the hard thing is, God, it's so much harder to live it out than it is to speak truths, than it is to memorize truths. So, God, I pray we'd take an inward look at our lives and be honest with ourselves. And, 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 God, help us to be more truthful representatives of your kingdom. God, I thank you for the groups that have been meeting for years, and those leaders who are here, and those that are just stepping up for the first time. And I I pray you'd provide them everything they need for this conversation ahead. And we can be your people, God, whether it's on the Gulf Coast in 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 the weeks to come, or it's in our business, or it's in our family. God, help us to represent your kingdom well. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.